Hello and welcome to the Glasgow Motorway Archive podcast. I'm Stuart Baird. And I'm John Hassel. You're joining us for the second part in a two-part series of special podcasts celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Kingston Bridge, one of Glasgow's most iconic structures. Yeah, that's right. It's good to be back talking about this. Now, we, we only spoke about up to 1970, so there's a whole rest of this saga to tell you. That's right, John. There's a whole 50 years worth of uh, really interesting information mm. uh, to be revealed in the second part of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, as you may remember, in part one, we discussed the, the, sort of the history behind the bridge, the planning, the design, the construction, and up till its opening. In part two, my intention is that we're going to talk about the initial years of operation. We're then going to talk about the... The refurbishment and strengthening works that kicked off in the 1990s and continued through the, the early 2000s. And then we'll talk a bit about how the bridge operates today. And then maybe a wee bit of speculation about the future. Of course. Um, as well That's added good. in there. Um, it's As I say, the strengthening and refurbishment, uh, it's, a, it's a thing that's probably still in the, the recent memories of mm-hmm. some people. Um, it was... It, it was news. It was a, it was a it was a big deal, I and mean, I yeah. didn't live in Glasgow at the time, but I remember it being on the news. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So so there's a lot to tell there, and I think that some of the information I've planned uh, to reveal in this podcast is probably new information to a lot of people. So we'll hopefully fill some gaps in the yeah. knowledge of folk. So, about, certainly fill know. some gaps in my knowledge as well, because yeah. I've been waiting with bated breath for yes. this. And like in part one, you're going to act as quizmaster. I'll be cross-examining you. Well, yeah. I'll do I'll do my best. Yep, and yeah. I may have one or two questions yeah. for you as well. Okay. Uh, particularly towards the end. Uh, I don't so, know, Stuart, you might have got all your bases covered. I might mm-hmm. not have too much to go on here, but I will do my best. Well, if not, just... I will just be the nodding dog. Yeah, <laughs> I, I doubt that very much. Um, we'll okay. see how we go anyway. And uh, we'll tell you a wee bit about the celebrations that we have lined up for yeah. the anniversary date as mm-hmm. well in this podcast. Okay, so let's get into it. Yes, let's do it. Uh, I've got plenty of papers here in front of me, many more than usual. We need a bigger table. It has to be soon, yeah. Many <laughs> You've more. got quite a lot there. Now, we have thoroughly enjoyed researching the history of the bridge. Yeah. Um, I will be the first to admit that prior to this anniversary coming up, we had some knowledge mm-hmm. of the bridge, but not anywhere near as much information and detail behind it as we have, say, for Woodside and Townhead and the Renfrew Motorway. I mean, you might you're a, you're a bridges kind of guy, Stuart. I'm a roads kind of guy. So Kingston, yep. I just well, it is just part of that inner ring road. Yeah. You know, I just seen yes, it is important, but I didn't know too much about it structurally until we really started looking at it. Yeah. To me, I would say, and I probably said this in part one, but I think the Kingston Bridge is probably the most significant part of what is known as the mm. inner ring road, or what yeah. was known as the inner ring road. Uh, certainly, the most visible. Okay. And 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 the bridge has become immediately. Reco- uh, kind rec- of recognisable yeah. and, and, and associated it- with Glasgow. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so as we said in part one, the bridge opened to the traffic on the 26th of June 1970. Mm-hmm. Now, in its initial months of operation, traffic flows increased very steadily mm-hmm. over time. And in its first year of operation, it was being used by about 10,000 vehicles a day or so. Okay, so, so hardly anything is yeah. less than a tenth. We have to bear in mind, obviously, that at this time the bridge was sitting on its own. Yeah. With no connections to the motorway system on either side. Right. The first connection came in 1972 to the Charing Cross section of the Inner Ring Road. Mm-hmm. And that then provided that L-shaped bypass around the city centre. Okay. Yeah. So that contributed to another rise mm-hmm. in traffic flows, as you would imagine. Another significant increase came when the Clydeside Expressway was completed in 1973. Yeah. And there was a connection to that. 
That's right, this. because Kingston Bridge on the north side ties up very well with the King, uh, Clydeside Expressway. Yeah. Yeah. Then we saw another small increase in 1975 with the completion of the first stage of the Monkholms Motorway, which extended the M8 from Townhead to Cumbernauld Road mm-hmm. to the A80, so the traffic coming in from Stirling and Cumbernauld and you know places in the north, mm-hmm. so again, a better connection still. The, the route's almost becoming strategic now, isn't yep. it? Yep. And then in 1976... In the autumn of that year, when the Renfrew Motor reopened, yes, that completed the missing link between the end of the bridge and the south side, and the Renfrew Bypass, and the Renfrew Bypass at Hillington. So traffic flows obviously went up quite a bit then. Yeah. And finally, in mm. April 1980, when the final section of Monkland Motorway was completed across the city as far as Bailiston, mm-hmm. that completed the cross city route, and traffic started to really climb up at that point. So much so that by the summer of 1980. 80,000 vehicles a day were using the bridge. Yeah. Okay. Now, coincidentally, congestion started to appear on sections of the inner ring road from the summer of 1980. Okay. Yeah. And it was for that reason that they had originally anticipated that the south and east flanks of the inner ring road, as we've talked about in other podcasts before, mm-hmm. were due to be completed. And they would have carried a considerable proportion of the traffic that was using the bridge at that time. It was supposed to split it up, basically. Yeah. As we know, those sections were cancelled and there was a lot of debate going on about what could be built or what wouldn't be built. Mm-hmm. And that had the effect of funneling more and more and more traffic because onto the M8 and onto the bridge in particular. Yeah, because okay. Kingston was never meant to carry this load of traffic. Well, as we said in part one, it was designed for 120,000 vehicles a day at 1990. Mm-hmm. Now, it reached that. Yeah, but it also started to exceed that figure. Yeah, and because that, that's was, what I was alluding yeah, to. Yeah, and because there were pinch points mm-hmm. on other parts of the ring road, that led to some queuing of traffic over the bridge. Yeah. Okay. So the bridge is getting perhaps a bit more use and traffic mm. than was originally considered. Yeah. Okay. One thing I just gonna come in sideways at you here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. If the east flanks and the south flanks of the inner ring road were completed mm-hmm. because we've already established from a highway plan for Glasgow that the through route traffic going from the Monkland to the Renfrew motorway would have been encouraged yes. or should have gone round those east and south flanks. Kingston Bridge would have been the I don't I don't know, but this is a speculation, but would have been the not not as busy. Uh, no. uh, uh, the two Clyde crossings that you would have had, the yeah. one over at Glasgow Green going towards the Gorbals, would have been the busier crossing. The theory is that the traffic flows would still have maxed out at about 120,000 a day because of the amount of people in buses and all sorts of things looking to mm. access the city centre. Also heading towards like the Maryhill Motorway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and some of the other routes. Yeah, of course, yep. the Maryhill would have would have fed yep. the Kingston Bridge. Exactly. So, mm. yeah, so it would probably have maxed out around the 120,000 a day mark. Yeah. Okay, rather than... Exceeding that, if we had this yeah. other other crossing, so that by a part, you know, by a, a stage of the nineteen nineties, it was over one hundred and fifty thousand vehicles so right. that, were, that were using it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the first years of operation were relatively smooth. The bridge was well used; it was well regarded. Mm-hmm. Um, it well was maintained. It was well maintained, well looked after. Okay. But all was not well. <laughs> okay. There were one or two structural issues with the bridge. And it was almost a victim of its innovative design and the nature of the bridge that it was, mm-hmm. in the sense that it was post-tensioned, uh, you know, it was a large span, mm-hmm. slender, okay? There were a number of issues. There were other issues that started to creep in. 
Now, the story goes, and we've been told this by a couple of people, and I'm going to repeat it here for the listeners because I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Okay. The story goes that the first time that anybody at Strathclyde Regional Council, who, I should say, had taken over maintenance and ownership of the bridge in 1975 when Glasgow Corporation ceased to exist after mm-hmm. local government reorganisation, it said that the first that anybody was really aware of a particular issue was when a woman had sent a letter in to the roads department, a member of the public, mm-hmm. had sent a letter in asking a question which said, when I'm on the bus every morning going to work, I'm fascinated by the fact that the zip at one end of the bridge is always open, but the zip at the other end of the bridge is always closed. Zip? Is she yeah. talking about the cone joints? She is. She was talking about the bridge expansion joints. Right, okay. okay. So, people in the roads department were like, no. All right, okay. Uh, so someone was sent out to have a look at it. And uh, it was found that the south expansion joint was fully open and the north expansion joint was fully closed. Now, that shouldn't really be the case. No, it should have been about 50-50 open either yeah, end. Yeah, allow, allowing for that contract. Because to yeah. me, that'd be, why is it constantly one way? That's right. Something's not right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. the normal expectations mm. of behaviour of a bridge weren't really indicated through the expansion joint. Okay. So that was noted right away. By the early 1980s, there were some other structural issues that had been um, identified. So mm. in addition to the expansion joints, it was noted that at the north pier, so the, the main support on the north side, so that's the one that sits at Brumula, the one with the big swimming swimmer mural on it now. Yeah. It was found that that north pier had rotated slightly to the north. And the cut water, which is that rocket-shaped piece oh, yeah. of concrete that you see coming down the outside edge mm-hmm. of the bridge on both sides, that was leaning to the north. So it was pointing towards the Mitchell Library. Okay. okay. At the same time, it was noted that some of the concrete at the base of it was crushing and it had, ins- it had exposed some of the reinforcement bars within the, the concrete as mm-hmm. well. And the north key wall, so the key wall of Anderston Key, mm-hmm. which had timber piles and masonry, a masonry wall. The masonry was found to be cracking and the timber piles were found to be bulging. Okay, so, yeah, no alarm bells ringing. You're thinking, okay, clearly a problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many years, Stuart, was this, roughly? So this, after... this all started to be identified from about 1989. Right, okay. okay, so Kingston had been open for a while at this stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a good 15 years minimum, anyway, before they started to become aware of right. some significant problems. Now, that wasn't the end of the story, because it was also found that a bit of a dip had formed at mid-span. So, in the middle of the bridge, directly above the middle of the river, the arch of the mm-hmm. bridge had sunk slightly. Okay. Uh, right. When you see, right, can I clarify? A dip... A dip. Or a plateau of it, in so to speak, because, I mean, a dip would be something you'd, you'd feel in the car. Yeah. It would go boom, boom. No, this wasn't the type it, of dip that you would feel in the car. So it was over a long distance, so it was, yes. it was flattening out, yeah. almost. Enough yeah. that it could be seen to the mm-hmm. eye, standing on either of the banks of the river looking up, you would see that the nice curve that was there originally had kind of sagged a bit. Okay, so you're thinking, mm. okay, that's not quite right. As a result of that, on the lower faces of the, the concrete arch, so the soffit of yeah. the bridge, there were stress cracks were, were showing on parts of that as well. Okay. 
That's one set of problems. Yeah. There was another set of problems which were not entirely related to the behaviour of the structure, but more of a result of the design of what had been put in. Now, the first of these, or perhaps the most um, urgent of these, was the, you know those nice aggregate finished precast panels that we talk about that, that were round about all the, the railings and the copes? Yeah, that's right. All the ones with the small stones and things to, to look just, nice. Just for people listening, can you explain what copes are? Yeah, so that's the section where the bridge parapet system, which is the railings that stops vehicles going over the edge. Yeah. Okay, so the cope is the edge of the bridge, the upper edge of the bridge, yeah. where the parapet system is mounted to. Okay. All right? So, originally there were nice precast panels all around the edges of these mm. features, okay, to make it look nice. They had no structural purpose. They were in this. They, they were just bolted on. They were bolted on, and as we, I think we mentioned mm. before, that the road heating system that was installed didn't entirely work yeah and they switched to using salt when yeah. they were you know gritting the bridge in the winter if there was snow and ice mm-hmm. that salty water started to get into these precast units and caused them to break up and spall and eventually dislodge and sections of them were falling on to areas beneath the bridge yeah some into the river some onto some the roads some onto footways walkways. yeah and some cars were damaged mm-hmm. okay also there were a couple of high-profile incidents where vehicles actually breached the vehicle parapet system. Mm-hmm. So buses, trucks, for example, heavier vehicles, when they were hitting the, the parapet system at certain angles, rather than being held on the bridge, the system was bursting open and mm-hmm. the vehicles were falling through. And there's two cases that are well-known where I, uh, a truck went over the Bothwell Street off-ramp and ended up in the car park of the one of the hotels below. So that's the one that goes off to the city centre? Yep. There okay. was another so, case where a bus burst through on the main bridge itself, I believe heading south uh, towards the West Street off-ramp. Yeah. There was one near. Did, uh, did that vehicle, <clears throat> that bus, did it go completely through the parapet? The bus didn't, but the other vehicle did. Oh, and there were some other cases where cars had, had gone through as well. As we've seen in some of the old newspaper articles, mm. um, a, a truck went through, um, and later another truck went through, and a car also went over at Anderston as well and ended up at the, the front of the station building. So the parapets weren't, weren't containing. No. They weren't doing their job of containment. Were they aluminium? Yes, it was an aluminium system, um, mm. which was an inspect system at the time the bridge was designed and constructed. Some people felt that it perhaps wasn't as future-proof as, as some steel systems, which were used by other consultants on other parts Definitely of the Definitely in the, in the 60s. It was a thing yep. that they used to, and I know the Kingston Bridge opened up in the 70s, but, yep. you know. Yep. It's a relic of the 60s, basically. Mm. Um, Aluminium so parapets, yeah. Those were the main problems mm-hmm. that were facing the bridge. Okay. Now, we'll tackle the main structural issues first. Okay. Okay. Because it all eventually There's ties lot, into... There is story. a lot to talk about, I know. It's a, okay. it's a bit of a story here. So, concerned by what they had found and what was being seen, Strathclyde Region commissioned uh, an investigation mm-hmm. which was going to produce a report um, that could be presented to councillors and the roads department team so they could determine the extent of the problems and try and devise what action was required to put it right. Okay. Now, things are never easy. Things are never straightforward. The project report, or a draft of it, was leaked to the press prior to be being seen by the roads department or the council committee. And what ensued can only be described as a media storm. Right. With front page stories on the front of the daily record. 
the Glasgow Herald, the Evening Times and others about the bridge's problems and predicting doom and gloom and that it was going to collapse and it was unsafe and there was all sorts of mega issues. I've, now, yeah, I've seen this this mock-up they've done yeah, of the cars going off the edge. Off the edge. So we've, fortunately, we managed to secure a number of head, uh, these uh, newspapers front pages uh, recently and it's been quite fascinating going through them and, and just reading sensationalised, completely, utterly sensationalised and looking back and now having all the facts and figures and information available to you, what they were yeah. saying in the newspapers were utterly, not fabricated well, completely, but totally you overdone. you got to sell a story though, yeah. yeah? They're trying to sell newspapers. Yeah, of course. And uh, the effect that had was to create a bit of, not panic so much, mm. but it certainly created a lot of interest in what was going on with the bridge. And for the council and for the councils, it put a lot of heat on. And it put pressure on them to be coming up with solutions and ideas before they really had a full appreciation themselves about what actually was going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So eventually they got the finalised report and it was decided, um, the director of roads decided, a man called Donald Carruthers, um, who was the, the last director of roads at Strathclyde Region, he succeeded uh, Bill McAlonan, who had been in there prior to that. Um, it was decided that they would create a project team and put together a project team which would be made up of experts, not only of council officials, but also of experts from academia, uh, consulting engineers in the private sector, and also some contractor input as well. And they were going to try and devise a programme of works, remedial works, um, that would put all these problems right, but also to assist them and to enable them to fully understand the problems that the bridge mm-hmm. was having. Yeah, of okay? course. Yeah. Now, the first thing that was deemed essential was really a monitoring system because they needed to know how the bridge was behaving. So this expansion joint was still shut at one end and open at the other. Mm-hmm. So the first thing they did, and this was around 1991, was to install a monitoring system on the bridge and its approaches to try and determine uh, exactly what was going on. And this was remote monitoring. Now, that's a fairly commonplace thing today, but not just so much then. It's called structural health monitoring that's these right. days. Yeah. yeah. So that would monitor the bridge temperature, its movements, the external air temperature, wind speeds. Uh, and most of these sensors were installed from the outside, basically by drilling into the bridge and fixing them. They also installed a number of prisms and things like that as well. Yeah, you know, so you see the guys with the theodolites? Yes. Or the levels, beaming lasers at things to get mm-hmm. an idea of distance and if things have moved. So there was a lot of that went on as well. And that all started, as I said, around about 1991-92. So they started to get figures. Now, this real-time monitoring system was providing data every 15 minutes okay, to computers back at the office. Mm-hmm. So they were able to monitor frequently instantly what exactly was going on with the bridge and this was like early 1990s so pretty yeah. cutting edge stuff for that's right yeah and there was more than 30 of those points um installed originally okay um, you know so there was there was quite a few so in terms of figures there was 36 digital movement sensors 16 16 reflecting prisms and 120 thermometers and a wind monitor okay. so you know a fair a fair amount of to give them the there. idea of what's going on with the bridge yeah okay so once they started to get all this information coming through, they were able to start saying, okay, this is what's wrong with the bridge. We're going to have to rectify these problems and how we're going to do it and how much, crucially, is it going to cost? Because mm-hmm. that was a big thing. So really, the, the first priority was the key wall. So the key wall at Anderson, as they had found, was, was it wasn't at risk of collapse, but there was a worry that if the, if the pier was to continue to rotate, that it could wash out the key wall mm-hmm. and that would allow water into the, the that would the, the, you know the, the problem yeah, yeah, yeah that would allow water into the base of the foundation and, and whatnot and maybe wash it out and then that then could become a considerable problem so they brought in a, they brought in a whole other rock anchor 
Mm-hmm. So big rocks getting placed in the river on both sides against the key wall just to shore it up, provide some stabilization. And they also had a contract where they jet grouted. So they, they, they basically injected liquid grout mm-hmm. into and around all the open space around the uh Yeah. The foundation. Uh, the voids and everything. Yep. I mean, just to explain to people what grout actually is, that's a kind of cement-type material yeah, exactly, that, you yeah. that you put in, and and kind of like a slurry. Exactly. Thing, Commonly yeah. used with his own mine workings and things like that to fill them mm. up uh, and secure them. Um, and that's what was done here around about the the uh, the pile the pile caps and the foundations to, to secure all that. So all that was done. So that took some immediate pressure away. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they continued to devise a number of works. Um and tried to gain an appreciation of exactly what was going on by the bridge, uh, mm-hmm. with the bridge. And this is where a lot of people who follow us often ask the questions, okay? Because in 1993, um, lane two of the bridge on both carriageways mm-hmm. was closed to traffic. Sorry, lane two? Lane two of the bridge. So when you're in the middle of the bridge and you get five lanes each side, mm-hmm. lane two was closed. What about lane one? Lane one was open. <laughs> lane two was closed because... There was a concern if the vehicle, if the bridge was overloaded um, by traffic. So if it was, you know, if there was some kind of incident and there was a lot of forty-ton vehicles sitting on the bridge in the middle, uh, worst-case scenario type thing. Yeah, the yeah. bridge itself could actually lift at the ends, you know, because the bridge is resting on bearings and mm-hmm. supports. There was a worry that the bridge could actually lift and potentially come off the bearings and mm-hmm. fall over. Okay, so what they did was they thought, right, okay, let's restrict some of the traffic that can move over. We'll close this lane on each side and we'll bring in a whole load of concrete ballast to sit on the bridge at the end to weigh it down, mm-hmm. basically. Okay, so Kentledge, basically. Yeah. Okay, um, about 100 tonnes. Uh, and it was temporary concrete barrier that mm-hmm. they used. You know, it was something simple. Uh, it was stacked in about three layers uh, at each of the four corners. Okay, uh, and there were single lines of the temporary concrete barrier around it as well to keep traffic on either side. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that kept lane four closed and, and basically protected all the, the, the Kentwood and stuff that was that was in there. Um as I say that was installed because they were worried that the, the hold down bearings perhaps wouldn't uh have the capacity if the bridge was overloaded with traffic and, and some kind of incident. Okay. Now eventually that system was replaced with something a bit more robust. And that was the steel barrier, the video guard system that remains in place on the eastbound side at the moment. That was installed on both yeah. sides initially. Now, as we know, it was retained on the eastbound side because mm-hmm. it was found to significantly improve traffic flow yeah, because the weaving of vehicles from the main carriageway to the West Street ramps and down to the Clydeside Expressway at that time was contributing to congestion issues. And it was quite severe. Mm-hmm. And they found that when they put this permanent restriction in, the traffic using the M8 actually improved, you know, the, the congestion. You, you yeah. had less conflict of traffic. Yeah, we have, we've covered that one a few times, yeah. but no, that, that's the reason why, you know. Exactly. Mm. So that that's kind of the reason for that. So that was done in 1995. So by 1985, um, they had put yeah. in the permanent video guard system there. And that was all, that was all pinned down. Um, as I say, it had been, uh, it had been performing very well. Now, it was clear that all of this work was going to cost a lot of money mm-hmm. and the Strathclyde region certainly couldn't afford it on their own. So the support of the Scottish office was sought um, to assist with the payment of this, uh, which was estimated at the time as being anything from £10 million to £20 million to £30 million. They, they really weren't you know, clear on what the exact eventual cost might be. Mm-hmm. You know, well, they were trying to 
uh, pin it down. So eventually they did get some support from the Scottish office and that allowed them to start moving forward with some of the bigger work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that all started to come about from about the mid-1990s. Uh, and there were various other bits and bobs that were being done as well. So we spoke earlier about how the parapet system wasn't performing as it should and mm-hmm. these bits were falling off. So there were also contracts designed and procured that would remove all that and would replace all the parapet system. Um, initially, that was on the outside faces of some of the slips, uh, the ramps. Um, so I believe uh, they, so they just wanted to go. You know what? Let's just saw every issue at once. Why we've got the money? Why we've got the scope? Just now, do ex- it exactly. Yeah. So between nineteen ninety three and nineteen ninety five, uh, the first of these contracts was carried out, um, mm. and that was of the Waterloo Street on ramp, and then the West Street on ramp. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those were the first two that were done. Okay, um, around nineteen ninety three as well, a flat jack system was installed below the North Approach viaducts as well to measure all the loads that were being transmitted between the two structures, because the bridge was actually leaning against this North Approach viaduct. That's that's the way I see it. I mean, if you, yeah. you're saying that that comb joint at the north end was like... So the whole bridge was resting yeah. on these North Approach viaducts, which are big structures in themselves, yeah. you know? Yeah. Eventually, it got to the stage where there were so many of the old precast units were breaking up and falling onto the road below that they decided to remove them all from mm-hmm. all the areas where they were at risk of falling onto live traffic or people below. Mm-hmm. So there was a contract let where they actually came in and broke, broke them all off. And people will remember for a few years, maybe looking up at the bridge, and you could still see the remnants of them because there were bits that were actually pinned on. But the bits that were breaking off were the bits that were just hanging, not hanging free, but they were part of the unit and the cracks were forming in certain areas and where the bits were breaking off. So you could see rugged lines yeah. Where the drills had gone in and basically broken the the loose bits away, or the bits that were at risk of falling off. Yeah. Uh, and until until recently, there were still some areas that that actually had that. No. All right. All been sorted now. That's right. So, the biggest contract of the lot really was the main bridge strengthening works, mm-hmm. and they took place over a four year period, from about nineteen ninety six, to the year two thousand. Okay. Um, now, there was a whole raft of works. Done there, and I'm not going to go through it all here because there's so much. You will find it as a summary on the new web article that's mm-hmm. coming out in the bridge. It will be available on there, so you'll be able to go in and have a read. But basically, um, the kind of work that was done was some additional uh, piling installed at the south abutment of the bridge. Um, you know, at the south uh, main support. Um, shuffle on my notes here because there's so much to tell you. <laughs> um, then there was additional post tensioning installed within the bridge. Now, post-tensioning is basically long strands of wire and cable and steel that are pulled tight that go through a bridge like Kingston Bridge type and it holds it up. Basically, it gives it it gives mm-hmm. it strength. Okay? So it's these bit, cables are pulled and anchored at the ends. It's a bit like a suspension bridge, but on the inside. Exactly. It's like a big elastic band. Yeah. So if you, if you were putting an elastic band through, you know, through a tube or something and you were pulling it tight at the ends... It would straighten the tube it out. It would straighten out. Yeah. You know, and that's exactly what what post-tension is. Mm-hmm. So the although the original bridge had a degree of that, it didn't have enough. Mm-hmm. So they put additional post-tensioning in. And you've seen it because when we visited the bridge and we were inside the bridge, you could see it as those blue tubes. Yes. That are all the, all the, the strands all tied together, mm-hmm. going all the way through. And there's several of them going through. Yeah, it looks like Lego bricks in areas where it's exactly. you can from see the outside, that yeah, so you, where, they, where it's pinning onto the bridge right. itself. That's right, so if you're at Broomy yeah. Law or if you're at Paisley Road and you look up, you'll see what, it looks like nuts and bolts from the outside, yeah. but it's not, it's anchors for the, mm. for the post-tensioning internally. Uh, so that was the main aspect of that. Also, it was determined that both main supports on either side of the river would have to be replaced. 
and new bearings installed. Mm-hmm. So what they did in this innovative system, which using computer technology then, which God, would be fairly basic compared to what we have now. Yeah. The bridge was basically jacked up onto temporary jacks that were controlled by a computer and they would adjust automatically mm-hmm. based on the traffic that was using the bridge at that time. Very sophisticated for the time. It's a bit like jacking your car up while people are inside it. Yeah. Moving about. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, they had it was adjusting it on the fly pretty yeah. much. Okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had the jacking system ever failed, there had been a problem. They had procedures in place where Strathclyde police could close the bridge within 10 or 15 minutes of being notified. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's how urgent it would be. Okay. So that was a big, big part of it. So the two piers on either side were replaced, demolished, and two new ones, like the ones we see today on either side, were built. So they're not the original? No. They just look like the original. <laughs> right. That's good. Yeah. So they, yeah. they retained the, the, like the cut waters that come down the side. Yeah. They retained the look of that. Okay. okay. And there's probably parts of that were actually the original blocks mm-hmm. or whatever that they've used there. Now... People might remember in the year 2000, in the autumn of the year 2000, the bridge was closed for three weekends. Okay, completely closed. Now, this was in the days before the M74 completion. So so the, from Friday night through to Monday morning? It was actually from Saturday night. So they closed from 7pm in the Saturday through to 6am in the Monday morning. Okay? Yeah. And what they did during that time was they would jack the bridge up and they would do work underneath and then they would then lower the bridge down onto the new bearings. Uh, Huge. This bridge weighs... Thousands of tons. Yeah, of and course. They were lifting yeah. it up, and they actually moved it slightly. I think it was like thirty millimeters. It wasn't a lot, but they moved it a bit, mm-hmm. and then they put it back down under these new bearings. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so that was yeah. massive. That work, mm-hmm. absolutely massive. But it dealt with one of the biggest problems mm-hmm. that the bridge had, which was the strengthening aspect of it. You know, the yeah, lack of strength and the fact that it was all moving to one side. Yeah, you know. So that rectified all of that. Now I've got some costs here. Okay. Uh, the main strengthening contract between ninety six and say two thousand two thousand and one cost thirty two million. Okay. Okay. Now quite a few million had been spent up to that point, and some of these other schemes that we had spoken about as well, what, like so, the parapets, coats, yeah. and other things. So my, but the year two thousand and one, it was something like thirty six or thirty seven million had been spent on work to bring the bridge up to current standards. Mm-hmm. You know, to secure it for the future. Now it only cost eleven million to build. So you know. <laughs> In terms of the raw numbers, mm-hmm. three times more had been spent by that point just to keep just it operational. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But they, did they have a choice, Stuart? No, they didn't have any choice. And because again, you couldn't because again, they didn't have the M seventy four no. completion back. And then. the ongoing dithering about the M seventy four and whether it was going to be completed and when and where and all the rest of it, that delayed the completion of that, as we know, until twenty eleven. Had that been there as an alternative route, yeah. Life would have been far easier for the guys working on the bridge, you know, trying to trying to keep yeah. it operational and bring it, you know. Or here's an idea: just have had that in a ring road off the bat, and then uh, you know it would have given them a lot more flexibility. Exactly. But that's a whole other that's argument. That's a whole <laughs> other argument. After that main strengthening contract, there was more work that had to be done. Okay. Um, people will remember that for a number of years there were seven and a half ton weight limits on the Stob Cross on ramp. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's the high one that comes on from the Clydeside Expressway to the, the westbound carriageway of the bridge. Yeah. So that was restricted for many years. That had to be significantly strengthened. Again, that came down to the fact that heavy vehicles and a lot of vehicles were using it. Yeah. It just wasn't a design for what it was taking. The West Street, uh, sorry, the Stob Cross off-ramp to mm-hmm. the opposite one, that had to be completely rebuilt. That's the one with the horrible merge at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was completely replaced. 
because yeah. the problems that it had, it was found just to be easier just to put a new ramp in, which basically looks identical to the original, I might add, but it's mm -hmm. in a slightly different form of uh, so construction. So they got rid of the, the old ramp completely and made yeah. a new one. Yeah, it's all gone. That's all gone in there, and I remember when all that was done. Uh, they also replaced the half-joint bearings, the half-joints for people who uh, maybe don't know a lot about structural engineering or just basically breaks in the, the, the heck of a road of a big long bridge that allowed it to, to expand the contract over regular intervals. Um, limitations of the time in terms of calculations and all that sort of thing and the design and understanding uh, meant that joints had to be a bit more frequent than they are today. Now you have big long span bridges perhaps with an expansion joint at either end. Yeah. And in those days with that particular type of construction on the north approaches and the south approach viaducts, mm -hmm. they put in these half joints to simplify the design. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they let water through, uh, and water and all these yeah, things over time, and that contributed to a lot of problems as well. Yeah. So the half joint work was all done around about two thousand one, two thousand two. Uh, the stop cross off ramp was done around two thousand and three, two thousand and four, if I remember correctly. The on ramp was done between two thousand and two and two thousand and five, mm -hmm. and then ultimately the the replacement of the comb joints. Um, was done in the, the early 2000s as well, so they mm -hmm. took away those original expansion joints that had been closed I've shut seen... and opened at the other end and put in those new rubber pad style ones. I've seen these. They're mad. You remember Big that? Big Transflex joints. You've, yeah. you've shown me these, and mm -hmm. I remember you saying to me, these are these are expensive, but they're good stuff. Yeah, know? exactly. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, uh, parapet replacement work had been ongoing as well, so the central yeah. reservations were done in the early 2000s. New lighting columns were put in at the same time. The gantry signs were refurbished and put back on. Uh, so basically, when you look at the replaced parapet, it's a typical three-rail three steel mm -hmm. system. So you'll see that at various points of the bridge now, you know, as you drive over. And the copes, so the bits below that at the edge, they're just a nice concrete finish. Yeah. They're just a nice concrete finish. Um, <clears throat> they're not just going to fall off. No, hopefully. no, no. It's all hopefully. an integral part of the bridge. Right. So that's, that's how we build things now. Much mm -hmm. more robust, much easier yeah. to maintain. Uh, and much less risk of bits falling off and, and, mm. and things like that. So that was all done. Now, the original project team, uh, which had overseen all the major work, uh, which started with Strathclyde Regional Council, mm -hmm. that project team then passed to Glasgow City Council in 1996, when, when Strathclyde Region ceased to exist following another spell of local government reorganisation. They continued their work until 2006, until all the major work was done. And at that stage, Transport Scotland's operating companies so Amy, Scotland Transserve, as it's been to date, they then started to oversee any major works on behalf of the Scottish Government, Transport Scotland at that time. Yeah. And the first scheme that happened after that was the Bovel Street off-ramp refurbishment. And that happened during the summer of 2008. Yeah. Okay. And that was the last time that there was significant traffic management on the bridge. That's the one with all the chevrons on it. Yeah. That was the time when there was a funny story in the paper, or one of the newspapers, when people were actually writing letters to ask the cones to be kept on the road because the traffic management on the bridge actually helped the traffic flow. What they did was the lane the lane that joins from the M77 and then tapers off as you go over the bridge. You know the one where you're kind of forced to get into lane? So when you yeah. get to the bridge, it goes down to two lanes, but that third lane goes off to the, the slip road. Yeah, That was closed. So what happened was the traffic coming off the M77 was forced in to merge as it joined the M8 rather than being able to continue in a lane. And the effect that had was by the time you got to the bridge itself, the traffic flow was far better. It was fine it because usually. it stabilised. Again, you removed so, the yeah, conflict. Exactly. There. Again, this was in the pre-M74 days. Yeah. So, you know, it was the only route at that different. time. So, yeah, that was the last major, major, major scheme mm -hmm. um, that was undertaken. 
since then, there has been some work on the south approach viaduct to the bridge. People may remember a couple of years ago, uh, the parapet system there was all replaced. Parapets and copes were done yep, there, as far as done. I know. But they also, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Stuart, but some of the gantries have also been refurbished on the bridge. That's well. right. They have one of the same gantries. The first one, as you come round the bend, going northbound over the bridge, that, mm-hmm. the, that one was done again. That was given nice new LED lighting. And so was the one that sits over the Bovel Street off-slip and the St mm-hmm. Vincent Street link and the, the main carriageway as well. That one was also done. Yeah. Um, the, there's only one contract left to be carried out in the bridge and that'll complete all of that work that was originally envisaged mm-hmm. back in the, uh, the early 1990s and that's the, the parapet system of the north approaches. So you know the bits that sit above the Anderston uh, junction? Y- you know, yes, yep. but there's quite a lot of gaps there, isn't that's there? Right. Where you can see down yep. in the, yeah, yep. there are. Yeah. So that's the last contract that's due to be uh, undertaken and that'll be done in 2022. Oh, and that'll bring okay. it all to a close. And to date... Mm-hmm. Over £60 million has been invested by uh, the Scottish Government and Transport Scotland to ensure that the bridge remains operational for many, many, it's, many it's years. it's got its LED lighting yep. as well. And That's another all thing. those decades to come. Yeah. Uh, so it was money well spent. Okay. Because the bridge is probably more robust and capable now than it's ever been. Than it's ever been. And we still need it. And it's still needed. 155,000 vehicles a day. Mm-hmm. It peaked around 180,000 just before the financial crash of 2009. Yeah. Um, dropped off a bit after that, mm-hmm. and then it dropped off by about 25,000, 30,000 a day on average when the M74 opened in 2011. Yeah. Okay, so there was obviously quite a quite a, a reduction then as well. So it's brought us back down to that kind of mid-90s level, which is good. And hopefully, if that can be sustained, yeah, and, you mm-hmm. know, going forward, that, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. As I've said before, there's far too many vehicles on the roads, um, mm-hmm. you know, as it is. Uh, so yeah exactly you know so i think that sums up pretty hopefully, pretty much the, the story yeah, the saga pretty so well far, you know as i say the, the bridge is fully operational at the moment still well used i think still well regarded i i think so yeah. we we certainly like it we think it's iconic we use it regularly i uh, yeah i mean i do it's it was always my route across the city instead of the m74 mm-hmm. in, in in a lot of ways because i was heading north yeah. You know, so it made more sense for me to take that way. It's a, it's a beautiful highway, um, <clears throat> ten lanes, yes, wonderful urban motorway, yeah. sweeping across the Clyde and giving <laughs> you great views of the city centre and beyond. That that is the the thing I always feel like. Say uh, when I'm and I'm introducing somebody to Glasgow, I've got somebody in the car with me uh, who who hasn't been on the Kingston Bridge before. So it's an exciting moment to go right. Okay, there's this, there's that. It gives you a great little viewing point of the city. Look at this! Wow, it's really fantastic, and it is. It's exciting. I like it. Yeah. So no, I'm I'm <clears throat> glad it's there. Now, something cool happened. Where is it? Was it this morning? Or was it yesterday? We got some photos through. We were talking about on the last podcast about the underroad heating. Yes, we were. Do you remember? Yes, we were. That's I it. do remember. And you have received some rather wonderful photos of where the substations and the, the basically the supply for this yeah. underroad so heating. Yeah. So I, I think we mentioned that there was a. A sub your substation uh, housings yeah. for for a, for this system on both sides of the bridge, and the one I was talking about was in front mm. of Anderson Station. There was another one on the over the south side of the bridge under the West Street ramps, the, the ski jumps to yeah. nowhere. And uh, we have to say thanks, <coughs> excuse me, to to one of the listeners, Peter McCann, who actually had some photos of that uh, of those yeah, old. But- uh, huts or buildings or whatever I don't you know what, call I think they're terrific when I, I I've never seen these before yeah uh, so no Peter's photos are great and I was looking at them going do you know 
I would never have guessed what they were. You know, with these kind of things, I just think there would be cabinets surrounded by palisade fence yeah, yeah. or in yeah. some nondescript red brick building somewhere, mm-hmm. and you just you wouldn't know what it is. Yeah. But they're quite unique. We've got a couple of photos uh, of how they looked at day one as well, which are probably going to be shared in the next week or so. So watch Terrific. it for them. But no, thanks to Peter for sending those over. We'll, we'll certainly keep them in the archive and yeah. keep them for future reference. And mm-hmm. uh, thinking about the future, then. Mm. Where do you see the bridge in 25 years' time? It's <laughs> um, something you have mentioned already about traffic management setups on that bridge and how they made flows better. Mm-hmm. Depending on the way that traffic goes, if we're going to see this, if we're going to keep seeing a growth in traffic, we might see further segregation of the lanes on the bridge. I see that might be something that could come in the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe the configuration of some of the junctions at either end might change slightly. I'm not talking anything major, but it could just be how lanes are, how things are, what, what route are we trying to encourage traffic to go through? Yeah. You know, so perhaps some changes in the in, in the lanes and maybe how you, how you can access and where you can go from the bridge. That's what I see. Okay. You know? it's, it's kind of difficult to speculate at the moment, given that the circumstances we've been in in 2020 with uh, with COVID, with COVID, and the effect yeah. that had on on traffic and yeah. the economy and and society in general, mm-hmm. I think it's difficult at the moment to actually predict where things will be in a year's time, uh, maybe even five years time. Um, I'm thinking I'm thinking long term. Yeah, and longer, year. and then longer than that, because, as you see, because economies and things that they do bounce back, and and as as our hopefully our economy improves, you know, massively, then you will see rises in traffic. And I do wonder, perhaps, if there will be some prioritisation for public transport mm-hmm. on the bridge. Um, you know, there may well be um, changes there to encourage more people to leave the cars at home when they're going to work. We've got this change now, though, we, with the the M74 completion. Mm-hmm. Is that can be seen as almost like the strategic route from east to west. Yeah. You know, so what, you, what you're saying is it's freeing up ability to have public Other transport options. Um, yeah. or, or something like that. But public transport uses it anyway, though. Indeed. Yeah, so you're into urban coaches and that sort of... Yeah, it goes, it goes on this. Yeah. But what you're saying is it's more of a local crossing. Yeah, which which it hasn't been since 1970, mm-hmm. really, when it was sitting on its own. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, and there's this whole talk about the decarbonisation of transport as well. Yeah, um, you know, going forward, we'll be mostly be using electric vehicles, probably. Yeah. Um, with the perhaps the bridge, the bridge might out, outlive mm-hmm. private transportation in that sense completely. It might end up be, being used as a link for other mm-hmm. purposes, be it walking or. Cycling Could you imagine a fast-link public transport service across the river, or I was going to say, could could you imagine some kind of whimsical long-term project of the bridge being turned into some green pedestrian bridge mm. with this and that? You you don't know as much as quite honestly the the idea of that right now makes me sick. But I uh, <laughs> these are the opinions of John Hassel. But it it does because we rely on that bridge so much. We see it. I mean, it would still even with the M seventy four. If something happened to it or it shot, it'd be a nightmare. Is, Let's it, face is it an over reliance? You know, not at all. Not at all. All right. Okay. You know. Okay. You got to think about a lot of people <clears throat> who who live and work in the city centre and in those areas and actually how much they rely on it. You know. Yeah, I I was asked a question recently about whether I felt that the the motorway had resulted in more division of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made me think back to something John Cullen used to say about okay. how hindsight was a was a wonderful thing. It's the only exact but also, science. 
Exactly. <laughs> but also that, that Glasgow was grinding to a halt yeah. in 1960. Mm-hmm. Congestion was horrendous. Yeah. And uh, they had an opportunity where they were clearing vast areas of housing, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. And they had a, an opportunity to fit a new road system within that. And they took it and they kept mm-hmm. the city moving. And some would say that the motorway actually mobilised more people mm-hmm. uh, than divided them. Because it allowed people from um, Pollock yep. to get to Townhead. Very quickly. Very it, turned, quickly you know. it, it achieved the goal of the corporation at the time, which mm-hmm. was to turn the city centre into a destination that people wanted to visit for mm. shopping, leisure, the theatre, the cinema, for work. Yeah. You know, for all these types of things that prior to that, people didn't do mm-hmm. too often. You yeah. know? And uh, that was kind of the main, the main aim of it. But yeah, it's always, it's always important to remember how bad the situation was at that time. And Glasgow grasped the opportunity much more enthusiastically than many Some other, other cities. cities across Britain. Yeah, right. And uh, they are suffering to an extent yeah. from that today. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't been able to do just the same amount of things as... I mean, look at Edinburgh. Princess Street in Edinburgh should have been pedestrianised 50 years ago, mm-hmm. like Sucky Hall Street, Buchanan Street, and a girl street were. Buchanan Street, mm-hmm. as a street, and Sucky Hall Street were busier than Princess Street ever was. Mm-hmm. But they're both pedestrianised now. But Princess Street can never be pedestrianised in Edinburgh. Because no, because the, the you don't route. have a motorway going through the meadows to, yeah. to relieve that. Yeah. Yes, we've got the tram that now goes along. Yeah. So good way. or bad, yeah, you know. good or bad, yeah. the motorways allow things yeah. that, you know, that you couldn't ordinarily do because the traffic was coming. Even in 1960, mm-hmm. whether Glasgow wanted the roads or, or not, that the traffic, traffic was, was coming. coming. The growth in the car was happening, not just nationally, internationally, yeah. you know. Uh, and that had to be considered. And people do often say, well, you know, Glasgow is one of the lowest car-owning cities in Britain. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. But it's got a huge suburban area that yeah, depends you, on that city centre. When you think of cities, you, you have to think of the metropolitan areas, yeah. the big areas outside. And, and when you've got, mm-hmm. at that time, when they had some of their main factories and, and, and industry in the west of the country, you're thinking about Linwood and Greenock and places like that, and traffic getting from there and goods getting moved from there, from Hillington Industrial Estate, even to Edinburgh, to elsewhere mm. in Scotland. It just was not practical to keep expecting that, to use roads like Paisley Road West yeah. and Cumbernauld Road to get where yeah, it was going. Kind of the, the, the negative environmental impact of that would be yeah. horrendous. You know, you so, so I suppose that's a bit of a kind of retrospective take of, mm-hmm. of things. Uh, yeah. Future-wise, I think it's open to. It's we open don't know. To debate, I, I yeah. actually think it depends a lot on future road building strategy. Now, say, I mean, I'm, I'm glancing to the right here, Stuart, at our big map of the GGTS. Yeah. But say, in you know, decades to come, we do have a, a more comprehensive and complete orbital route round the city via a southern orbital or a northern orbital. Yeah. Will uh, Kingston be as important then? No, I wouldn't imagine it would be. Well, there you go. I mean, mm. that's something to consider, but. Without those alternatives, to me, that's why I, I'm I'm very I get quite protective about Kingston in its current form. I think it would be I, I just I, I can't see it being restricted in the immediate future yeah. in any ways against no, the I, traffic that's I, on I it. Think you're but right on it, with the construction of new corridors and other things like that, that could allow it. Yeah. Who knows? What the next few years will bring. The crystal ball. Yeah, it'll be interesting to do this podcast again for the 60th anniversary and see how how things have. I thought you were going to say my 60th birthday there. Well, that's only eight years away, so. uh, Yeah. Feels like it. So, yeah, be interesting to see. Anyway, 
let's talk a wee bit about the celebrations. Yes. Because we mentioned briefly in part one that we did initially have some big ideas, but unfortunately the, the circumstances this year have yeah. kind of put all that on hold. Um, so we focused our attentions on social media and digital means mm-hmm. instead. So I think I mentioned before, but we'll, we'll cover again. We have a new web article being mm-hmm. released. Uh, people may be aware that uh, our existing website is in the process of being replaced, mm-hmm. upgraded, renewed, refurbished, yep. strengthened. So I, use all these engineering gonna, terms. I was going to say it's well uh, apt within the theme the, of the, the bridge. The website host <laughs> that we use at the moment, we've been using for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, since day one and they haven't kept up with the times and that's left our existing site maybe just a wee bit behind and a wee bit deficient it, where, where it was really lacking and i think some of the listeners might even agree with this is 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 on the mobile versions yes particularly because a lot of people i mean i do it i spend most of my time on the internet on my yeah. phone rather than on the computer yeah. you know? and, and habits have changed so when the website was created people were mostly desktop based for that's that right. type of browsing and our website isn't ideal for mobile no. so that's why we are changing it so yeah so to get back to the point so we're in the process of changing the website and i'm delighted to say that the series of articles that we're releasing to celebrate the anniversary will actually be in the new format Ooh. on the new host page so they'll be fully mobile compatible yeah and it's a whole series of articles covering the inner ring road now, you, you may have seen some of the inner Ring Road articles on the existing website. Well, this takes that and it expands upon it and puts more detail behind it and new images and new photos and new details just to, to enrich oh, the it. images are cracking. We have yeah. got stuff on there that you haven't seen on the, on the oh, outside. Yeah. Absolutely. So new d- graphics and all sorts of Don't just think, oh, I've read about the inner no. Ring. No, 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 no. Go no, no. on that and see. And the Kingston page is brand new because we've never had the Kingston page before. Uh, so that's going to be on there. There's going to be a wee bit about the south and east flanks as well. Mm-hmm. But the Kingston part's going to be the main point of it. So, so that'll be revealed. Go there for Kingston, but yeah. you've just mentioned something that I know um, a certain faction of our followers and listeners really like, which is the unbuilt stuff. Yeah. So saying we've, we're going to have some stuff on that south and east flank as well. Oh, yeah. As well as Townhead, Woodside, does that include the, Does that include all the maps? Well, I don't know about all the maps, John. All but the so, maps. Uh, some of the maps. Uh, there'll be showing, some of showing, the maps. showing where the route went, because we do get asked a lot about it. Oh, this, yeah. And there'll be know? some scheme development maps produced. No, that's fine. Sorry, well. I, I just wanted to represent yeah. some of the people that, that do have the interest in oh, that. Yeah. So. But on the Kingston page, there'll be a okay. whole load of brand new info, new photos, new graphics, new Good. details. As I mentioned earlier, that summary of the construction uh, works and refurbishment works that were carried out. So look forward to that. The commemorative booklet that we've produced that we mentioned the last time, yeah, uh, which is stunning, absolutely stunning, absolutely amazing. I concur. I think it's great. Um, yeah. Produced in collaboration with Transport Scotland and with the assistance of Patrick Jordan, wonderful guy who's helped us mm. with some of the design concepts and things and the production of that. Um, so we thank him for that. That's all coming in. That'll be available to download from that page as well. Later in the year when the circumstances the situation improves, uh, there will be a published copy uh, published printed uh, versions glossy. available yeah yep. glossy brochures and they'll be available but we'll we'll let you know about that nearer the time obviously we have the podcasts there are some other surprises lined up mm-hmm. i'm not going to spoil them now because this podcast will go out just before the anniversary okay so i encourage you all to stick with us if you want to know what we're doing you need to follow the hashtag kingston bridge 50 that's the hashtag we've used um or we're using for all our posts across twitter and facebook and instagram so if you follow that, you will know what we're posting and when. But there's a lot of really good stuff. There's a whole series of photographs that we found recently that show the bridge on opening day. Mm. And there's a few of them going to be revealed. And I'm sure they will be enjoyed by everyone. Yeah. I'm sure they will be. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm looking forward to sharing stuff that people haven't really seen. Yeah. 
exactly it's always good yeah any more questions for you mr hassel before we we round this i one think up? that's about covered i give you a pretty easy run of it yeah, no, I think you did. Again, it's one of these subjects. A lot of information, but not really a great deal. I knew we only had so much time. I yeah. didn't want to. I didn't want to uh, interrupt you too much with your. No, what looks like a tome of paper. Yeah, there. I mean, it is. It's, there's pages and pages and pages, and no doubt I've missed things, and, yeah. and there's probably some details. So you have to check out that web article to make sure you get you know 100 percent fine. Um, we of course will be doing the podcast again. If you have any questions about Kingston or anything like that, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Yeah, ask us. We will do our best to answer. Yeah, uh, and we will be back very soon with mm-hmm. another edition of the Glasgow Motorway po- uh, Archive podcast. Um, yeah. We'll have a whole raft of exciting topics coming up between now and the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and a sure. whole raft of research required, okay? So yeah. it's work from me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks for listening to us. As you know, the podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple mm-hmm. Podcasts and Podbean, as we've asked before. Please leave us some re- reviews and ratings on Apple. It helps us. It gets more people listening to us because they will share us. They'll make people aware that we exist yeah. it's good to see social media is obviously there as well Jordan. we do we follow us on all the usual channels so we've got twitter uh, we've also got facebook and we have instagram so if you need that daily fix of glasgow motorway related stuff go there it's all on there yeah. i'm going to do a final shout out to ian hamilton mm-hmm. uh, ian listens to the podcast he's uh, he enjoys them uh, ian works for bbc uh, in scotland and uh, we were working with ian uh, very recently Mm-hmm. on some things for the, the anniversary of the bridge that will be seen uh, near that date my lips yeah. are sealed um, <laughs> there's a few things coming up in some of the newspapers um, as well mm-hmm. so keep an eye open for them That's and good. some other social media feeds we'll be talking about what we do and yeah. sharing some of our it's stuff good to, as well. good to get the name out there and good to get I expect there's probably quite a few people who haven't really thought that the Kingston Bridge will be turning 50 and Absolutely. they will be in line. Yeah, and they this. probably use it every day. And they go, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, it's turning 50. Great. So at that point, everyone, thank you again for listening. We've hoped you, you've enjoyed parts one and two of mm-hmm. this podcast special. I've, I've quite enjoyed splitting it over two for a change rather than squeezing it, it one to I one. I have noticed your relaxed demeanor. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I think we'll be doing some more <laughs> double headers. Uh, as, yeah. as we go go forward and splitting it up a wee bit so. as long as you might maybe do a double header about like the M898 or something well <laughs> yeah, could you even do a full podcast on that I don't know uh, but anyway thanks for listening and we will see you very soon yes thank and you and happy birthday Kingston Bridge we love you very much and we hope you're here for another 50 years <laughs> yes happy birthday Kingston Bridge alright bye for now bye bye